Turned off by religion and hypocrisy? Hate being preached to? Something missing in your life? You haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. In this portion this week, we see that Jacob had already dealt with Laban. All of the turmoil that he was experiencing, all of the inner struggle that he was having, all of the tsurus, the troubles that he was experiencing, wondering if he was going to actually get to leave with his family or if he was going to be uh, slaughtered by his own uncle after he had taken advantage of him in so many ways. When we look at all of the troubles that he went through, we see that God made a promise when he first left the land to go to where Laban was. And when he left there, he left knowing that his brother was going to kill him when his father would die. And that he knew that uh, he was angry at him and his mother sent him off fearing for his safety, figuring that it would be a few days and he'd come back and everything would be fine. Only it was 21 years or so till he came back again. And now he was going there because God had given him his family, had given him his livestock and all of that. And now he had this encounter last week with his uncle. And we see, you know, it's always funny to me, you know, that, 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 that little pendant that people wear, uh, where it says, may the Lord watch between you and me while we're absent one from another. And people do that where they give half to their, their, their best friend or to their, their wife or their girlfriend or whatever. And they talk about being together, but the context is not really talking about uh, about two people loving each other. The whole context of it was uh, that the Lord watched between me and you while we're absent one from another, that you won't try to kill me and I won't try to kill you. The whole concept was one of not allowing us to come into conflict. Now, maybe that's a good thing to have in, <laughs> in, in marital relationships, well as not to come in conflict, but the whole purpose, it's kind of turned around when you see those. And it's a beautiful concept that we consider one another in that. But now he finishes with this experience with his uncle, and he's getting ready to go and see his brother, who the last thing he heard was, I'm going to kill him. Now, I don't know about you, but when you don't have encounters with people for a long period of time, you begin to only have reference to what it was you experienced before, what it was you had gone through, what you remember from before. I've mentioned this again other times, but you know when you go to a class reunion, everybody, it could be your 40th class reunion, and everybody is 17 again. Because the last reference they had for most of the people there was when they were 17. And so all of the, they act like they did when they were there. They expect the others to act the same. And when you find out that the, the prankster is now a prominent attorney, or, or, or a, a, a specialist in surgery or something like that. It's hard to imagine. Each of us goes on with our life, and we go through various struggles, but we have reference for what was the last encounter we had. And that's why those things are so interesting, the regression that happens when people go and haven't seen them in so many years. We go back to what the familiar reference point was. And so for Jacob, it was a reference point that was not comfortable. And he was now returning. And then when he heard that his brother was coming with 400 men, 
he began to panic even more. And he began to feel a real struggle going on. Now, the title for this message is God's Strategy and Struggle for Our Freedom. Now, you wonder, you might say, does God struggle? Well, in this story, we see the wrestling that Jacob had after coming through victoriously with his uncle and going forward. There was now the time that he was going to be coming to meet his brother, and he was scared. He was, he was fearful. He wasn't sure what that encounter was going to be. And so when they came, when he was preparing to go and he heard that they were coming, he sent them all over to the other side of the river. And it says that he was alone at night and there he wrestled with a man. He was left alone and wrestled with a man until daybreak. Now that wrestling is understood to be to wrestle with an angel or to wrestle with God. But ultimately what he was wrestling with was this inner struggle over moving forward. And all of us go through these struggles. You know, struggle is something that is universal, whether it's for good or for bad. Struggle, there are, do you know some of the words for struggle? Do you know that jihad means struggle, my fight? Mein Kampf means my struggle, my fight. Each of us have struggles, challenges, things we don't understand, fears that take hold of us and keep us bound. Sometimes it moves into the directions that we see with the jihadists or with Hitler. And we see the destructive element that seems to sweep away everything. There's a struggle that brings desolation. But there is also a struggle that wrestles with those things that are inside of us that are not right, that need to be managed, that need to be brought under control. And when we come to the Lord and we wrestle and struggle with God in those areas, God is able to strengthen us and give us an ability to become victorious over those things that have held us bound for so long. Fear and uncertainty has a dramatic effect on our well-being. We feel the stress. We feel the strain. We feel all of those things. But there is a struggle inside. There is a battle. We mentioned last week, from Romans 7, uh, where it mentions that conflict that goes on. uh, The good that I would, I do not. That which I would not, that I do. Uh, There was also another part of that that I wanted to uh, just remind us of here because I think that this depicts the kind of struggle that most of us experience in one manner or another. And it seems to be a contradiction inside of us. But in a way, a struggle is a contradiction inside of us. It's trying to figure out what direction we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to do when we feel paralyzed by our fears and our emotions and all of those things. Um, It says in Romans 7, these are some of the verses I didn't mention. It says in verse 14, For we know that the Torah is of the spirit, but as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. There's a struggle, right? It's the conflict that is going on inside. Now, if I am doing what I don't want to do, I am agreeing that the Torah is good. But now it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside me. For I know that there is nothing good housed inside me, that is, inside my old nature. I can want what is good, 
but I can't do it. So I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want is what I do. But if I am doing what the real me doesn't want, it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside me. Now, this is pretty emotional. This is pretty raw, what he's speaking of here. But we all have these conflicts. And what we do with it makes a difference. How we address the struggle makes a difference. We see that God struggles too. You say, God struggles? He knows everything, so why would he struggle? He is struggling and wrestling with us, trying to get us to a better place, trying to get us to understand there's a strategy to his struggle. Even when Yeshua was suffering in the garden, he was feeling the weight and the gravity of what he was about to do and wasn't sure he would physically even be able to get out of the garden. He felt the same kind of stress levels that we do, but even more so. And it was weighing him down. It was affecting him physically and emotionally. It's the only place in Scripture, as we've said before, where you find Yeshua asking others to pray for him. Now, the fact that they fell asleep is just a secondary thing, but he was expressing incredible anguish and uncertainty. The uncertainty wasn't, as we've mentioned, and every time I bring up that verse, I, I, those verses I have to mention, he wasn't uncertain about whether he should go to the execution stake. He wasn't sure from what the evidence shows in that passage, without going into detail, that his body was going to make it out of the garden. And when he says, not my will, but yours be done, he wasn't saying, if I don't have to go to the execution stake. No, he was going there. He wasn't sure his body would make it out of the garden. And he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The will he was speaking was, if you're, it's your will for me to die in the garden, your will be done. He was willing to do that even though he understood that the sacrifice awaited him and God lifted that cup and he went forward to do what he was supposed to do. So we see the struggles going on. We see also in other places where God talks about the a struggle. When he says, Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out. I've had it. I'm going to start a new nation with you. And Moses steps forward and intercedes. He says, I will not, God said, I will not always strive, strive with men. I'm not always going to contend with him. He came to the end of himself in some ways. Not that God was going to have a breakdown or anything like that, but it was in that struggle and expression of terms of struggle that he was able to also draw Moses out to say, if you blot their names out, blot me out too. And it was to draw Moses into a place because he had his struggles as well. All of the patriarchs had their struggles, but it was the struggle itself that was part of the strategy that God put in place to bring about transformation in the hearts of each one of those. With all of the things that Jacob saw and all of the ways that God blessed him and all of the ways that he protected him, he was now going to confront his brother. And in the process of getting ready for it, he was having conniptions. He was upset. He was worried. He, he wasn't sure of what was going to happen. I think there was in place something that could give him some faith in that he just got past Laban, who was treacherous in the way he dealt with him. And that was with a relative. Sometimes relatives can treat you worse than people, than strangers. And we love relatives. It's, it's all relative. But anyway, when we come down to it, he was concerned. He was afraid. And the struggle that is described here in Romans is the kind of things that we wrestle with all the time, isn't it? 
this fact that we want, our intention is to do good, but the good that we want to do, we don't do, and that which we don't want to do, we end up doing. And then we feel miserable, we feel bad, we wonder. And in the process, God opens up. He says, what a miserable creature I am. Who will rescue me from this body bound for death? Thanks be to God, he will, through Yeshua the Messiah. And we see God offering opportunity for us to not walk under condemnation, but to experience the love of God that delivers us in the midst of the struggle. But the struggle itself is important because when we go through that, and listen, none of us have to pray for more struggle, all right? None of us, if you say, well, if struggle is the way that God do it, Lord, bring me more struggle. Bring me more torture and troubles. And No, we don't pray for that, do we? <laughs> and, and you shouldn't. What we want to ruminate on, what we want to think about are the things that are from above. What we want to think about are the things that are good, that are perfect, that are just, that are all from him, that we are centered in him. And what's great about the struggle, in this case, he is wrestling with God. And we see a physical description of this. We find that his hip is out of joint. There was a tenacity that Jacob had. He was not going to let him go until he blessed him which is a strange thing to request from somebody you're wrestling with. And yet in the process, God wants to let us know that he's with us, not to fight us, but it feels like a fight when we're trying to know whether we should lean to our own understanding or trust in the Lord with all of our heart. As we trust in him and as we struggle with self-doubt and as we struggle with what we think might be the best solution in our own mind, we are wrestling with these things. We are wrestling with whether we can trust him and whether we, or whether we're going to lean to our own understanding that the circumstances will dictate it for us. But in the midst of this, God brought about a powerful manifestation. And what we see is that God wants to have us struggle. You know, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean to be fearful and to tremble, but he's saying this is an important part of our walk with God, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We, we looked at that passage. If we look at, um, that's in Corinthians, right? Ephesians, that's right. All right. You guys are paying attention. I'm really glad. All right. Uh, that we, uh, uh, yes, in Ephesians, that we uh, we wrestle not, or here it says we struggle, uh, not against human beings, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers governing the darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. You know, sometimes we think if we're fighting with people that they are our enemy. In reality, they may very well be that iron sharpens iron investment that God's put into our life. We get we don't get to meet we get to meet a very small segment of the population of this world, very small. And so when we come into conflict with people, you can just simply write them off or you can say, "Lord, what is it in this struggle that you're trying to work out either for my good or for theirs?" There's something that is working in that if we look to the Lord to make it work for good. That's why we mentioned last week the passage in Romans 8, where he says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, in this section, we also see that uh, in, in the Torah portion, uh, we see where, where um, Rachel dies. 
in childbirth. And she talks about this one being the son of her sorrow. And he makes a change and he's Benjamin. And he makes the change to the name because he didn't want her suffering to be transferred to her son. He wanted it to be a word of encouragement for him to be something of special meaning and purpose. What we call ourselves, people pick names today uh, to call ourselves because it sounds good. Sean or whatever the common Nicole or whatever the names are. I don't know if you have people here with that. But I'm just saying there's all these different names. But in this time frame, and many times I'll ask people their name. They'll tell me a name I haven't heard before. And I say, what does that mean? And I find it interesting that in many cases they say, I don't know. My mother gave me that name. And I, I think it's interesting. I, I'll go, I'll look it up, and I'll say, oh, this is very interesting. They never knew what their name meant, and all these years, their name had a meaning. All of our names have meanings. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we will conform to that. But in the, in the biblical days, when they gave names, they represented a vision for each one. When we see at the end of this wrestling that this angel changes, he says, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, it'll no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. There was something about a graduation to a new phase in his life. And oftentimes when we go through struggles, we think everything is over because look at how devastating. There's no answer. There's no way that this is going to work out well. And then it does. And a new chapter, a new phase begins in our life. In this case, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. When we make people to be our enemy, we miss the mark. We do not understand and need to understand that each one is, in one sense, either a vessel of God or a pawn of the adversary. And so if it's one or the other, in reality, they are still a vessel of God. And we want to either be used by God to draw out that gifting that's in them from God, to free them from the bondage that the adversary holds them in, to have a heart to restore. I've mentioned that many times. That passage that says, if you see someone overtaken in a fall, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And in the day we live today, most people are simply gathering evidence against that one so that they can have a better case in court when they have to fight him in that way. That's not the struggle God is telling us. When we come into conflict and we see somebody overtaken in a fall, we have to have, and it only is, you can't just have it because you have a great personality to make that happen. But when we walk in union with the Lord, he gives us the ability to understand our own struggle and gives us the ability to want to encourage somebody else, to restore someone who is going through that. And just telling them what they're doing wrong doesn't accomplish that. Oftentimes, it just sounds judgmental. But when we come alongside one, of, one another, we see them struggling. We see them in turmoil with their emotions. We don't just dismiss it and say, well, you're on your own. We come alongside and we try to find the avenues to restore. We may succeed or not succeed, but God is working to will and to do of his good pleasure. Ultimately, he will use that for good and perhaps use it also as a way, a training ground for us to be able to know how to encourage and how to confront situations of conflict and be able to be a peacemaker in the midst of these tumultuous events, these struggles that people are going through. There's a strategy to God's struggle. 
He is looking to bring us through those struggles to bring us to a place of victory and freedom, deliverance from those things that have us bound. The struggle is almost like if you saw someone in a straitjacket and they're trying to get out. You ever watch those magicians or whatever they do where they, they lock the locks on and they put them in the water and he has a certain amount of time to get out. And you, If you are feeling bound, if you are feeling locked in and you don't have the capacity to know how to struggle properly, you will drown in that struggle. But the focus is not, boy, this is dangerous. I wonder if I'm going to get out of here. I hope I can hold my breath long enough. They already know and they practice. They know what they're doing and anything can happen. But the point is, everybody is, is sitting there on spilkes. You know, they're going, oh my gosh, is going to, I hope he, is he going to, is he going to drown it? And, and then boom, he gets out. And, oh, great show, right? Life doesn't always tell us there's going to be a good ending. Even when we understand that God is with us to will and to, to do of his good pleasure, that issue of struggling over trusting ourselves or trusting God comes up again and again. And we need to understand that if it is a spiritual challenge that we are wrestling against, spiritual forces and not people, then we also have to understand that God is working in a spiritual realm as well. And he is doing it for our benefit and for our good. Uh, in another familiar chapter, it says this. Chapter, this is what I was thinking before of Second Corinthians chapter 10, where it says in verse 4, because the weapons we use to wage war are not worldly. On the contrary, they have God's power for demolishing strongholds. We demolish arguments and every arrogance that raises itself against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive and make it obey the Messiah. In another translation, it says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Those imaginations, those ruminations, those thoughts that we have of calamity are having such an effect that we are in the midst of a struggle that we don't know if we'll be able to get through. We don't even know sometimes in those places if we can breathe. And yet God brings us through all of that. In this chapter, in this section of the portion, we also see uh, how when Rachel died, she was buried, not with where everyone else was buried. She was buried outside of what is Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Later, when we see in the book of Matthew, when Herod ordered all of these children, two years old and under, to be killed. It references the portion that says Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel, it's a strange passage because when you look at it later in Jeremiah where it mentions Rachel weeping for her children, you say, well, how did Rachel weep for her children? What's interesting is that Benjamin and Joseph were Rachel's children. Benjamin was just being born. And in the process, she wasn't going to be there for him. And her struggle at that moment was his well-being. Later, during those times, there was, uh, in the passage in Jeremiah where it's mentioned, uh, there was a slaughter that took place in the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. And it mentioned, it references Rachel weeping for her children. In Matthew, we see that again referenced when the slaughter took place in that area of Bethlehem, the place where Rachel was buried. There is something of wonder and anguish when we recognize that our offspring are in a place of turmoil. 
that we weren't there to be able to help or to assist. And we see this reference. And it can be something of a struggle because you say Rachel weeping for her children, yet Rachel was gone. But the reference to that concept of the posterity to follow, what will be there, these are the things we're looking at. Not to weep and to wail over what has not been, but to be able to look further. In fact, I want to pull that passage up in Jeremiah, where it says in Jeremiah chapter 31, and I sure hope I have this reference right. (laughs) All right. In 31, he is describing a terrible calamity that was happening. And he says, he who scattered Israel in verse 9 is gathering him, regarding him, uh, guarding him like a shepherd his flock. I want you to see that with the midst of this kind of a struggle and the turmoil that was being described here, God was turning the difficulties into victory. And he always will turn our tears into joy. He will always bring us to a place of reconciliation if we allow him to carry us properly through the strategy of the struggle. And when we do, he says this, it says, for the Lord has ransomed Yaakov, redeemed him from the hands, from hands too strong for him. They will come sing and sing on the heights of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, to grain, to the grain, the wine, the olive tree, et cetera, et cetera. It says then in verse 12, the virgin will dance for joy, young men and old men together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, comfort and gladden them after their sorrow. After the struggle, we know what the end is. After it's over, we feel the release and the peace of knowing how this conflict ends. And so we have peace after the fact, even though before the fact, we couldn't tell how it was going to work out. And so here it says, I will give the coin their fill of rich food and my people will be satisfied with my bounty. And then it says this verse, this verse, verse 14. This is what Hashem says. A voice is heard in Ramah. That's where she's buried. Lamenting and bitter weeping. It is Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no longer alive. This is what Hashem says. Stop your weeping. He's not being cruel and saying don't mourn. Yes, we mourn. But oftentimes, if we allow the emotion to so captivate us that we become nullified to the, or, or numb to the rest of our life, we put ourselves in limbo. And he says, this is what Hashem says. Stop your weeping and dry your eyes for the work. Your work will be rewarded, says the Lord. They will return from their enemies' lands. So there is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will return to their own country. And he talks about this transformation that takes place. He says in verse 27, just at that time, just as I used to watch over them with the intent to uproot, break down, overthrow, destroy, and to harm, so then I will watch over them to build and plant, says the Lord. When those days come, they will no longer say, the father has eaten bitter grapes. And he goes on and on. He's talking about wanting to transform us so that even through the tumultuous experiences of struggle that we have, the fear of the unknown, God is able to transform us by the power of his spirit. He's able to bring about these things when we understand that the struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but a spiritual warfare that he equips us with, with weaponry that will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the adversary. And those fiery darts are the things that bring fear and torment. Those fiery darts are the things that are passing through our mind, those things that we think about. And that's why he doesn't say that, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty, as if going into battle against a flesh and blood warrior. But he says, the weapons of our war, he says, uh, for the weapons of our war, not carnal but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds. What strongholds? Pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The real struggle is against the imaginations, the lies of the adversary that he causes us to think about over and over like a like a like a, a cycle that just keeps going over and over again and he wants to break the cycle so he we we the weapons that he gives us cast down imaginations that every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of god why does he say that because in reality the struggle again is for us to trust in ourselves or in the lies of the adversary or do you see to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Lean not to our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge him and he will direct our path. He works it out. The adversary wants to shout down the reality of God's credibility. He wants to destroy his reputation among his people. He wants us to not rely on the Lord, but to be living in consternation and fear. That's the struggle that he brought about. That's the struggle that inspired Mein Kampf and Jihad. Thank you. Those are struggles that bring about destructive end, decimation of people, destroying lives and places. But the struggle that God wants us to have is a struggle over our choosing to go by our own feelings or look to the Lord and see the power of God work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. As we learn to give way to our feelings and give our hearts over to the Lord, it is in union with him that we are empowered with this weaponry that casts down the adversary. Now, I'm just say this in closing. You don't cast down the adversary by saying, I rebuke you. You don't do it by saying, get away from me, get away from me, get away from me. The way that we rebuke the adversary is to draw near to God. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the adversary and he will flee from you. The resisting of the adversary is not telling him to go away. The resisting the adversary is to say, there is no vacancy for you. God, fill this place. And as we allow him to fill this place, there is no room for the adversary to fire his darts. And if they do, the shield takes it away. If it gets down to it, you don't answer the door. You say, Yeshua, it's for you. You let him answer the door. You put all of your focus not on what the adversary is doing to you or what the struggle is doing to destroy, but to say, God, work this for good. God, bring about your strategy to bring about my transformation and the transformation of all those I'm in conflict with, all those that I see struggling. Lord, bring about your strategy of freedom to liberate those that are bound, to set free the captives, to remove the bonds and the chains that have held each one bound. And when we do, God begins to bring about a transformation that only comes from walking in union with Messiah. 
from walking in union with him. It's the reason why he suffered what he did. It says, it didn't say that he appreciated suffering, that he loved to suffer, that he was some kind of a sadomasochist or something like that. It says, what was the reason he suffered? Who for the joy set before him endured the execution stake, the contradiction of sinners, the struggle physically that he experienced emotionally and mentally that may have been pressing on him. It was for the joy set before him. And that's why he says, count it all joy when you go through various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the struggle works patience. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. You see, the struggle is for our benefit to strengthen us, just like the caterpillar in his cocoon is struggling to break out. And if you try to help him break out by snipping it to make it a little easier, as soon as he comes out of the cocoon, he dies. Because the struggle was part of what gave his wings power that when he broke through the cocoon, he had the ability and the strength through the struggle to now become a butterfly that could fly. We don't want to diminish the struggle. We want to diminish the pain. We want to to diminish the ruminations that are evil and hurtful. But we need to be making the purpose of our struggle for the joy set before us. We endure those things because we know the end is going to be blossoming, that we will go to new heights, that we'll experience the blessing of the Lord, that we'll see that we have empowerment that we didn't realize we were exercising when we thought we were bound, when we were struggling. I don't believe the butterfly understands why he's struggling. He probably, if he could think it through, would say, this is rough. I don't think I'm going to ever get out of this place. I'm locked in like that straitjacket. I'm going to drown in here. I'm going to die in here. I'm going to try and get out of this, not knowing that the very reason it could fly was because of the struggle. There is a strategy that God has with the struggles we go through. And if we think only about what the negative repercussions are going to be, we will not learn the things that God is wanting to do. But if we yield ourselves to the Lord, no matter how difficult it may feel, he will bring that peace that passes understanding. He will bring that transformation. He will bring us from the place of mourning and weeping into a place of joy over the things that God is bringing about. We don't understand everything that happens in life, but that's the reason why he always says over and over again, I am with you. Be not afraid. Be not dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I am with you even to the end of the age. Over and over again, you see him saying to Jacob when he left, he said, I will be with you and I will bring you back to this. It's the I am with you. We talked about that before. His presence will go with us. If we take advantage of that presence and allow him in the midst of the struggle to bring about his strategy for transforming us, we'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind so we'll know what the perfect will of God is. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your promises. We thank you for the fact that we press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God that is in the Messiah Yeshua. We press in against the conflicts that are there so that we can see you bring us to new heights. Even in the Haftorah portion this week, it says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though there be no fruit on the vine, I will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the God of my salvation. Lord, help us in the midst of these challenges 
to be able to wrestle in the right way, to be able to understand and look for your strategy to be able to be released in our lives as we yield ourselves to you and see you do beyond what we could ever ask, think, or imagine by the power of your spirit working in us, not being drawn by the imaginations of other voices, but by the sound, comforting words that come from your spirit to ours through your word and in prayer. We thank you, Lord, for your promise. We thank you that through Messiah, we have access to all of these great and precious promises. Help us to walk in a manner that is able to experience the fullness of those things and not settle for anything less than all that you want to bring. Help us to grow in a way that will help release others also from their bondage, that they would be strengthened to be able to see new heights and places in you. We thank you, Father. Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about Beth Zion, please visit our website at www.bethzion.org. The following message was recorded at Beth Zion Messianic Synagogue in Jackson, New Jersey. Join us every Saturday and learn to see the truth of Messiah through Jewish eyes. Wow. All right. Well, today's portion is called Toldot. Toledot means history or generations. And there is a phrase that I want to use as a title in one of the verses that was read in verse 22. She said, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? And I thought for the title today, why go on living? It's a question. Why go on living? And one of the things that comes up and you say, well, how does this relate to Thanksgiving? It does. Because how we perceive what is going on around us has an effect on how we respond. One of the things that was mentioned earlier, there is we heard people sharing and the expressions of gratitude varied in the way that they were brought out. There were some that spoke with such words that you understand they un, they know the gravity of the gratefulness that they have because they know what they have been delivered from. When you know what we've been delivered from, it gives us a new respect and a new understanding of how grateful we are. There was a passage that Yeshua mentioned when it says, uh, who loved more? And the answer was the one who was forgiven more. Not because they were loved or had the capacity to love more, but they understood that they were forgiven so much that their gratitude and their appreciation and their thankfulness for what God had done when they thought that it wasn't possible gave them a great love and a great affection and the gratitude that was there, the attitude of gratitude, as it's been said, the ability to understand that you appreciate because of what he's actually done, not just because it's nice to say please and thank you. You say thank you. Or as we mentioned earlier, Todaraba, thank you very much. But oftentimes people will say things and will say thank you. And it's almost like, how you doing? Fine. And you? They're, they're not really engaging in relationship. We're just using f- words. But when you hear somebody expressing, like a number of you have here today, the gratitude and the appreciation you experience from the Lord, it's because of the fact that he's done so much. Now, I want to mention to you that there's, there's, there's an aspect of this portion that I think is very important to look at. Oftentimes, the challenges that come into our life, and I think the title, Why Go On Living, reflects the way that we view what's going on around us. We go through challenges and we say, why 
even go on? Why should I even bother? It looks like it's hopeless. It looks like there's no connection. It looks like it's not going to work out. And we say, why go on? But we do go on because the circumstances are not going to dictate what it is that God has presented for us. And oftentimes, the very things that we go through that are challenging are the pathways that God uses to build that sense of appreciation in us, that sense of thankfulness, because when we ask the question, why go on living? It says, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? But you see, whatever this is, she felt the stirring in her of the twins fighting. We go through our experiences and we see challenges, relationships that aren't working out, situations that are difficult, problems that come up that seems insurmountable. And yet in the middle of all of that, when we ask the question, why go on living? We recognize the commitment that God has made to us. And we say, he's the reason why I go on living because he provides everything necessary to complete our need. When you go through this, it's kind of interesting because it says that Rivka was childless. Now, I don't know if you've thought this through, but look at all of the matriarchs of the faith. We always talk about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we have the matriarchs. And isn't it interesting that Sarah was barren until 90 years old, that Rivka was barren until around 60 years old, that Rebecca and Leah. There's a place where Leah, feeling like she was shunned because she wasn't as beautiful as, 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 uh, as Rachel was, and Jacob was smitten with her. We'll go into that in later weeks. But the point was that she said she had no child, and God gave her a child. There's something about that birthing and that sense of barrenness before that happens. And I believe that part of what made them to be the matriarchs that they represent in the faith is because they went through the experience of not being able to bear children at first. That doesn't mean everybody has to not experience. There is a challenge that every one of us has. In this case, it's kind of interesting that all of them were barren, and what their response to that was was not complaining their response was to go to the Lord. In fact, it says here that, that she inquired of the Lord. It says, there are two nations in your womb. Oh, it says, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? So, so she inquired of the Lord. When we don't know what to do, when we don't know where to go or how things are setting up around us, what we don't want to do is ruminate on what all the possible terrible possibilities are because what we end up doing is finding ourselves in a place of complaining, blaming, feeling like we got the short end of the stick, figuring it all out in that way. We're upset about somebody else who is being blessed because we're not. All of these factors come in. And when we ask the question, why go on living? If our focus is on all of the negative things we will go on living as more like getting by and not experiencing the life that God has made and prepared for each one of us. But here they were barren, and God answered their prayer. It was that barrenness itself that caused them to cry out to God, to look to him, to look to their husband, to look to a way for them to experience 
transformation in that area. And God met that challenge. And then with the challenge of then being pregnant and having this stirring up inside, what is it going to mean? What is the turmoil that's there? And God answered her and told her. And we see all of the various struggles that people go through. I want to look for a moment at that passage that mentioned, um, I mentioned in Second Peter. Uh, uh, okay, let me just read it and we'll, uh, we'll get to it. <laughs> it says that, in describing what it is we have, he said in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, God's power has given us everything, everything we need for life. Why go on living? Because we have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowing the one who called us to his own glory and goodness. By these, we have been given a valuable valuable and superlatively great promises so that through them you might come to share in God's nature and escape the corruption which evil desires have brought into this world. All of the influences around us that cause us to look at circumstances and to look at difficulties and to look at people as the problem is keeping us away from seeing what it is that God wants to stir within us. I have heard over and over again about relationships that have been on hold for decades. And perhaps it was somebody becoming ill, or it may have been some issue, and you start to wonder why did we let it linger, the anger and the unforgiveness and all of these things. But we have to be able to pass through that and to be able to not ruminate on those things, but on the things that are most important. He says, for this reason... Try your hardest to furnish your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with perseverance, perseverance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And this is the verse I wanted to look at, verse 8. For if you have these qualities in abundance, they keep you from being barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So it isn't just simply a birthing thing. It's also, what is he birthing in us? What is it that we are barren in? What is it that's dried up within us? If we ruminate on these things that come from a place of corruption and of evil desires, we find ourselves trapped in a whirlwind of difficulty and of confusion. But as we set our affections on the things above, and as we Try our hardest. Now, it doesn't mean that this is, uh, that this is uh, doing it in our own strength, but we are cooperating with God by focusing on the things that he says to do, to furnish with our, fa- our faith goodness. And as he goes through, he says, if you have these qualities in abundance, and then you have to say to yourself, well, how do I get it in abundance? Do I work real hard to make it happen? Well, he already said by these He has given us valuable and superlatively great promises so that through them you might come to share in God's nature and escape the corruption which evil desires have brought into this world. He's given us access to superlatively great promises. So when he says, if you that when he says, if you have these qualities in abundance, because God has given and made available to us in abundance these things. The question is, will we focus our attention on taking hold of them and work our hardest to allow him to break down those barriers that we've put up in our lives, those things we put up to shield us from being hurt, 
which are also keeping us from experiencing the fullness of the love that God wants us to know. Sometimes it's those areas that are painful that bring about revelation into the things we see. I, I've said this too about blind spots. Uh, it's, it's just been hitting me at various times and recently very strongly. You can ask God to show us what those blind spots are, but I know from experience and even recent experience that when you begin to start to see what you haven't seen, you don't want to see what you see. But then when you see what you didn't want to see, God shows you what you didn't know would be. And in the process, he opens up to us a, a wealth of all of these superlatively great and precious promises that are sitting in the wing waiting to be poured out upon us, but not experiencing it because we are unwilling to open our eyes and let the blind spots disappear. But I will tell you, when we see those blind spots, there are some when you say, oh my gosh, why didn't I see this? And everything changes. But there are other times where you struggle with areas, you don't know what it is, we blame other people, we blame other things, we don't know what it is, and it lingers on and on and on. And the moment it begins to be revealed, I don't know about you, but it breaks something inside. Because you say, oh my gosh, why did I let this go on for so long? How could I have not seen this? But in a way, I was putting a protective shell around me so that I had a reasonable excuse for why it wasn't getting done. But I've said this before, uh, when I was, I mentioned, I think I mentioned this, I mentioned this last week, but when I was in our high school class reunion one year, they said, what would you have changed in your life if you could change one thing? And I said, I would have learned a lot sooner that no excuse, no matter how good it is, is a, is a, is a substitute for doing what you know in your heart you've been called to do. And yet many times we put those things on hold because we are so captivated by what that blind spot has put in our path. We are unwilling to let it go so that we could experience what we're living for, what we're called to live for. Why go on living if it's going to be like this? But the reason to go on living is because God's made provision for us that is beyond what we can ask, think, or imagine. And he wants to pour that out upon us. And we have to go through those challenging, painful experiences, not because God is a masochist and wants us to suffer pain, but in the process of going through those things and experiencing it, we come out, especially when someone else is involved too, you come out with a sense of freedom, of liberation, of something that may have been holding us back, whether it's unforgiveness or whether it's anger or whether it's abuse, whatever it may be, if those things are lingering there, they keep us from seeing the things that God's made available for us. Why go on living if God is not intervening? Why go on living if I refuse to take hold when he is intervening? God wants us to take hold of what he took hold of us for so that he could bring about transformation and change. Well, it says, uh, it said in that verse, for if you have these qualities in abundance, they keep you from being barren and unfruitful. It's so amazing that all of the matriarchs that we mentioned, they all had one thing in common. They made sure that they raised those children 
in a way that would bring about the generational increase of what God was going to do in those generations to follow. Think about another woman who was upset because, uh, because she could not have children. Samuel's mother, the prophet Samuel. And she was crying. Remember, Ellie, the high priest, was seeing her speaking or crying out to the Lord and saw her listening and thought she was drunk. No discernment. <laughs> but she dedicated her son to the Lord. And God gave her other children as well. And we see the impact of that. Part of it came through the challenges and the difficulties and the stirrings and the wrestlings that were going on in her life. It was what also gave her the ability to to pour into him and for the others to pour into their children the very elements that would get them through difficult times to be able to fulfill the destiny that was started and promised by God long ago. All the provisions were there, and yet all of the fear and all of the self-induced problem-solving that people tried to do, and you see the conflict, and you see how it didn't work out, but God worked it out. As they yielded to him, they began to see those things happen. But look at what it says here, too. There is this balance. Think about this. Here it is. He says, for if you have these qualities in abundance, they keep you from being barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. What he wants us to be fruitful in is our knowing him. In knowing him, we understand and have access to the promises and all the things he says is ours. And when we go through those struggles and those challenges, we come away with a liberating freedom that tells us how grateful we are from taking us from such a pit into such a place of blessing with the Lord. And look at what he says. He says, the knowledge of the Lord, barren and unfruitful. Prior to really getting to know him, we can say we know about him. I, I liked what Rick mentioned earlier. He had read the Bible from, what did you say, 17 to 47, and then found the Lord. He had the word, but the words were empty for a long time until he came into knowing the Lord. When he did, all of those other things had, had all of a sudden rushed in with all of their meaning and all of the overwhelming love that was there, read about, but suddenly was imparted. All of us have had experiences in some measure like that. 